sudden, I could invite you up to the CD sofa, if, if that's okay. Thanks very much for coming. It's great to have you here. This is the first time I've seen who all is here. Am I on? I think I've switched on. Okay. You can probably hear me anyway if I speak up. Okay. <laughs> That's great. I'm gonna ask. You, I'm gonna ask. <laughs> Gonna ask you just a couple of questions here, if that's okay, just so we can get to know you a wee bit better. Uh, would you rather have tea or coffee? Coffee. That's good. Uh, would you rather have the summer or the winter? The summer. I'm gonna ask you this next question, and this is a very, very big question. It's probably it's probably the biggest you're gonna be asked this evening. Oh. Do you prefer football or rugby? Um, and take your time, you know, it's a big, it's a big, big decision. I do go to Ravenhill on a Friday night, but I also watch Arsenal when I can on a Saturday. So I've made a few friends there. Yes. I like them both, but uh, I would That's prefer a good to play rugby because I cannot play football, but I like to watch them both. That's a good answer. And at my age, you play neither. <laughs> uh, could you explain to us just... How you became a Christian, if that's okay. And you okay. Um, yeah, for the for about the first 18 years of my life, I bluffed my way because it stopped people asking me too many questions. So I really did. I, my parents were Christians and a very happy home, but I, I, I just let on I was a Christian because that kept you know everybody from pestering me. Um, and I really, you know, the trouble is, I, I eventually convinced myself I probably was, and I certainly was not. Uh, but I had a friend at school, a fellow called Harold Carson, um, still a friend. Um, Harold was a Christian. I was a heathen. And uh, I didn't have to make any pretense at school. I just made this pretense at home to keep people off my back. But Harold really impressed me. I used to give him a hard time. I used to make fun of him. I mocked him. I've since apologized to him. But deep down, the reality of his Christian witness had a profound effect on me. And when I was 17 and a half, uh, influenced by Harold, I, I went to a meeting run by Youth for Christ in a hall that's no longer there. The Grosvenor Hall is gone now. And I trusted Christ that evening. It was very real, very definite. Things that I'd pretended became real, and Jesus became real. Um, and, you know, that's, that's the background. Harold was a big influence. So one guy who really lived like a Christian ought to, uh, and a heathen watching on, making fun of him all the time, but he got through to me, and I, I really ultimately was able to go to Harold and tell him that his witness had profoundly led me to Christ. And if, and if, if, if finally, uh, could you tell us just a wee bit about... Uh, if, if, what you're going to speak on the, uh, hmm. uh, this evening? Yeah, the, 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 uh, you probably know that the speaker gets plenty of notice. And yet I can honestly say, this is a confession, that I didn't work on it until a week ago. I'm, I'm pretty busy at the moment, but that's by the way. The thing is, it's Daniel 6. There's hardly a better known chapter in the whole Bible. 
And I noticed that some years ago, I worked through all of Daniel. One, two, three, four, five, seven, eight, nine. In other words, I dropped six. Simply, I don't know why. I think it was simply because I thought everybody knows about Daniel 6. But that's the chapter I have for this evening. And, uh, well, you can see. I certainly prayed through it. I got a lot out of it personally. And I hope I can convey to you uh, what God has been saying to me through Daniel 6. Okay? Am I still off on this other device? Um, I see Charles pulling his hair out back there. Uh, I have very little to pull out. Well, I have plenty at the back, but not too much at the front. Uh, hey, that's great. Thank you very much. Okay. That's brilliant. Thanks. If you want to go back to your, back to your seat now. And I Thanks. Um, it's, it's good to be here. For, uh, are there any engineers in the room? Two saved engineers, wow. <laughs> yeah. Well, just for your benefit, I used to teach here. Uh, that's in another incarnation. No, we don't believe in incarnation, but it's in another <laughs> phase of my life. I, I taught thermodynamics and fluid mechanics here for a lot of years and then moved to the opposition and taught there for a while at Queen's before God called me into pastoral ministry. Now, I do love other students apart from engineers, but they're a special breed. Uh, and I have a particular, a particular affinity for them. Uh, I'm not going to read Daniel 6 um, tonight. That would take a fair while, but let me remind you of the story and then draw from that story what I believe God is saying to us through this. And, you, you know, I really do appreciate being here. I, 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 do, I, I live among students at the moment. I do some work for an American university. I have 25 students over here at the moment living in South Belfast. I spend five days of the week with them and uh, endeavoring to teach and brought together a number of very good faculty in order to teach them Irish literature, Irish art, fundamentals of evangelical theology, an introduction to literature, European economics, and so on. So I don't do all that. I do a bit of it and bring in others. But living with students has been very good for me. And, and I really mean that. I don't mean to be patronizing at all. Uh, you and your age group have helped me to begin to see life as you see it, which is a very different world to the one in which I was brought up and experienced at your age. Um, so I'm trying very hard not to just see this through a grandfather's eyes, but to see it through the eyes of young people who have the future. And I'm also very aware of this. And I, I, I always feel obliged to say this, that I recognize that in this congregation, in this group of young people, there are those who are much brighter than I am. I may have got further down the road. I may have read a few more books. I may have had more experiences. But I do discover among the students that I've taught both in the secular world and in the spiritual world of Christian ethics and so on, I found those who can process material much better than I ever could and who will make a bigger impact on the world than I have. So I speak to you with respect, recognizing that in this room there are those who can really change things in this university and whatever part of life you touch. And that's true of this man. I mean, Daniel, by the time we meet him here in Daniel 6, he is on his third foreign monarch. He has been brought to Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar. He's lived under the short reign of Belshazzar. 
He's now under Darius, who is also Cyrus, by the way. If that confuses you a little, uh, really don't let it, because at the end of chapter 6, in the NIV, it says, also Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus. That translation is a bit misleading. It should be under the reign of Darius, that is Cyrus. They're the same person. So he's getting old now. He's now quite an old man. He's at the top of the political and the administrative tree. He reports direct to the king. I mean, get the picture. This is a huge world empire at its time. And Daniel is now one of the top three who report directly to the king with 120 regional directors or regional governors under them. And then something happens which really changes the dynamics and the relationships. The king is impressed with Daniel. He always has been, but he's now particularly impressed. And rather than have him one of this triumvirate of top administrators, he decides he's going to make him the top man. He's going to put him in charge of the whole kingdom. And suddenly the relationship changes and the others become intensely jealous of Daniel. And they decide we're going to find some way of pulling this man down. We're going to endeavor to destroy his image with the king and bring him down. But listen to this, and I wish this could be said of me. We will never find any basis for charges against him, say those who are jealous, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. Wow. I mean, that's a wonderful testimony. People can find nothing wrong with us, could they say that, unless it pertains to something that is to do with the law of his God. And by the way, you may say, well, surely that's not grounds for criticism. In the world we live in, it's increasingly becoming grounds for criticism. I don't know if you've been following the criticism of Bishop Nazir Ali, who is one of the leading evangelical bishops in the Church of England. And Matthew Paris, recently in the Times, did an article on Nazareth. He sits in the House of Lords. He's an evangelical, influential, godly man standing up for the truth, for the biblical truth. But Paris and others are saying, hold on, he's a Christian. Why should we listen to him? He is governed from a, a God that we don't believe in. He seeks to follow his rules. Why should we believe? In other words, he should be outlawed because... He endeavors to follow his God, a God that we have grown tired of, indeed grown out of, and is no longer really part of this nation. That's the thinking that prevails. And you're going, and I'm going to find it increasingly hard in a a society that is increasingly becoming more and more secular to find our views taken seriously. But people should be impressed with our lives and see that there's something there that is is real. The decree then is playing to the pride of the king. They bring a decree before him and they say to the king, look, here's what we suggest, Darius. Have a 30-day period when no one can pray to anyone but you. No other God but you. So they're now doing what happened to the Caesars. They're suggesting that this is a God king, Darius. And that plays to his vanity, and he signs the decree. A decree that, according to the Bible, the decrees or the laws of the 
the Medes and the Persians cannot be altered. And so the trial begins. They begin in their jealousy to spy on Daniel once the king has signed the decree. And Daniel, the Bible tells us, he simply goes along, as he always did, to a window that opens towards Jerusalem, as was his custom, kneels down and prays three times a day, as was his custom. And you find that the jealous group, the other two of the top three and the 120 others in teams, they go and spy on him and find that he is continuing to pray to his God in spite of the rule that has been made by the, the king Darius. In fact, they, they engage also in racism because they go back to the king and they say, one of those exiles from Judah is praying to his God in spite of the decree, O king, that you have signed. Daniel's testimony, mind you, was good for the, with the king, and he is, he is tormented when he realizes that he has been tricked into this particular decree that will destroy the governor, the chief minister that he wanted to make ruler over the whole land. So much so, in fact, that he says, may your God, whom you serve continually, rescue, but I can't change the rules. And in fact, the Bible tells us that for the rest of the day, he endeavored to find some legal loophole that he could use in order to get Daniel off the hook. But it isn't possible. He can find, I'm sure his lawyers worked on it. This is the king after all, but they could not find a way to overrule the law of the Medes and the Persians that cannot be altered. And the rest is well known to you all. He's thrown into the lion's den, which was the consequence for those who would disobey the decree. And the king does not sleep well, Daniel does. The king, the Bible tells us, is restless. He can't sleep. He has no amusement or entertainment brought to his throne room. He has a bad night. And early in the morning, he's back to see the consequences of his decree. And even as he heads for the den of lions, he's calling out, Daniel, Daniel, are you all right? He's really quite anxious. He had a high regard for this man. And if I read 26 and 27, I find that he issues a decree at the end of it all that exalts the God of Israel, for he is the living God. When he sees Daniel alive and not a hair on his head harmed, not a scratch on his body, the lion's put to sleep virtually or quietened by the presence of an angel, according to Daniel. And Daniel's safe. He's hauled out and the king makes this decree for he, your God, Daniel, is the living God and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lion. It worked, you see. Daniel's faith worked. In a postmodern world, people don't really care whether your gospel is true or not. They want to know, does it work? Does it change you? Are you different to the other people around? So I, I, I looked at this, and it's a great story, but I wondered, Lord, what am I to bring out of this to my friends at Jordanstown on Thursday evening? This story is about three things. It's about courage. It's about prayer, 
and it's about leadership. And those are the three things I want to emphasize. Courage. Make no mistake about it. Please don't. You guys are getting the sort of education that prepares you for leadership. And as a consequence, there is a high responsibility upon you in this world where many are either not educated at all or poorly educated. There is a great responsibility on you to prepare for leadership and be prepared to be called where Jesus wants to plant you. This isn't a question, you see, of living for Jesus that you're called to. It's living like Jesus. There are people who are only going to see Jesus if they can see him in you. I remember in the staff room at Queen's University in the engineering department having discussion with colleagues there, and, and, and they were complaining about other Christians. And I remember saying in that staff room and having my nose bitten off quite fairly, I said, look, hold on a minute. You shouldn't be looking at other Christians. You should really be looking at Christ, and he hasn't offended none of you. And Charlie Ludlow, a, con a, 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 a colleague of mine, turned to me and he said, Hatton, how are we ever to see Jesus if we don't see him in the likes of you? And I was really made small. And it was a fair point. How are people to see Jesus if they don't see him in you. We've got to learn to follow where he leads. Your brief must come from God. This is the wonderful thing about Daniel. You find that he was constantly just seeking to be where God wanted him to be and to behave in the way God wanted him to behave. I mean, Daniel would never have chosen to be in Babylon. He would never have freely chosen to be there. He, he wanted to be in Jerusalem. He, he prayed towards the holy city, not, not because there was something about the city, but it represented to him the presence of God. The tabernacle of the temple was there, and he, he prayed to the God of that place, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And remember this, that God's anointing on you will only be there in as far as you are where he wants you to be. I mean, let that sink in. God, you, you know, there are open doors and there are closed doors. We read in the book of Revelation, and it's a quotation from the Old Testament, that, 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 that there's a door God can open and no one can close. There's a door God can close and no one can open. And that, that goes for you and for me. And God is going to call you through certain open doors. And the blessing of God will be on you insofar as you go through the doors he opens. But if you try to go through a door, that don't expect God's blessing if you go where he's not leading. And he will equip you for everything he demands of you. He will never ask you to do something that he hasn't equipped you to do. He'll never ask you to go through a door that he's not prepared to go through with you. But I find so many people frustrated in life because they are endeavoring to go and to witness and to live for Jesus in situations and in places where he never called them. Be sure, be sure that you go through the door that God has opened for you. And some people will say, well, Lord, you know, you're saying that I have to follow you through that door. Could I have a wee peep and see what's there? And that's not the way God operates. Whenever God calls you, to obedience. People will say to me sometimes in pastoral life, how, how do I know the leading of the Lord? 
How will I know God's guidance? And I'll say to them without any hesitation, do you really want to go where God is prepared and wanting to take you? Well, I would like to know what he wants first. Forget it. It's not the way God operates. When you are surrendered to go where God wants to take you, and you're willing to go wherever that is and do what he calls you to do, not only will that be where the blessing and the anointing is, it's also at that point that God will guarantee that you will not get through any other door but the right one. Once he sees that you are yielded to him, not to some course of action, not to some line that you want to follow, but to him, then I promise you, God will ensure that you are not deceived, that he will keep a door shut if you're not meant to go through it, and he will open the door and say, this is the way, walk in it. God rarely negotiates. Don't try negotiating with God. He rarely negotiates. Why? Because he knows best, and he knows you, and he knows the DNA and the spiritual gifting that he intends to give you for the task that he is asking for. On second Jerusalem, Nebuchadnezzar asked the head of the court to gather the finest young men for the, the fast track, for really the Ivy League University of Babylon. A one-year course, intense course, but we only hear about four of them. I mean, there were hundreds of young men who were collected in Jerusalem. But the Bible only follows the record of four. And I wonder, is that because only four had the courage to really stand up for God in a godless nation, a nation that was totally barren of any real spiritual depth, a nation that was pagan, Four. And did the others just merge in and abandon the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob? And so here you are in, in the campus here, and you've left home, many of you, and you're living in halls perhaps, and it's the easiest thing in the world to break the umbilical and live as you please. And God is saying, will you stand up for me in this situation, like Daniel did, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did. Are you prepared to stand up for me in this situation? And, 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 you know, when I, and I t- it will take courage. And you'll find some of your colleagues will ridicule you. And they'll say, that book that you're endeavoring to live by, that's been, re- that's just, uh, you know, something that has come out of the Middle Ages. It doesn't really fit in the modern world. It is ever true. It is worth standing on. The longer I live, the more I realize. When I came into history, I can remember determining, I am going to make my intellect subject to the Word of God. I'm going to preach what God says, whether I like it or not, indeed, even whether I understand it or not, because this is God's Word. And I can honestly say I believe God has vindicated that. And it's only insofar as I preach this Word and stick to the truth of this Word that I can endeavor to have the blessing of the Holy Spirit in what I say. And there's a difference. You'll need courage, but there is a difference for the Christian. There is a profound difference for the Christian. There are lots of people in secular jobs who need courage. There's a lot of courage needed today in Afghanistan. There are people in the police forces. We've had a prison officer killed today on the M1, shot to death. It takes courage to do many jobs, but there is something that you have that makes a difference, child of God, and that is you can appeal for something beyond your natural capacity, your natural ability. You can appeal for God the Holy Spirit to come and endeavor to strengthen your resolve when the opposition comes. 
God did not give you, I read in this word, a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and of self-discipline. And failure in it, I know that some of you will have made a mess, as I've done in life. And thank, good, thank God that the, the, the norm for Christianity is moving on against the storm and against the wind, falling occasion, getting back up and working. That's normal Christian living. How do I know that? Because God has said in 1 John 1, 9, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Of course we mess up. God knows we're going to mess up. It doesn't give us an excuse for messing up, but failure is not final. And whenever we mess up or some of our colleagues mess up, then the, the thing to do is gather around, help us back onto our feet and press on because that is normal Christian living. Failure is not final. Peter in the garden lost his courage. He didn't lose his faith. He knew full well that there across the fire was the son of the living God. But he lost his courage. He chickened out. And, and, and you know the story better than I do. But on the day of Pentecost, I read this, when the people saw the courage of Peter and of John, they were astonished and took note that these men had been with Jesus. So you have not only this call to courage, and it will take courage, but also the anointing of the Spirit of God whenever you endeavor to use this life of yours to the glory of God. Our courage will ebb and flow. Daniel needed courage to impact the court of Darius. And you will need courage to impact this. It needs guts to go up to someone, even a member of your friendship, with your Gospel of Mark and say, you know, this has meant a lot to me, this book. And I just think so much of you that I'd love to share it with you. You know, could we meet for coffee and, and discuss it? That will take guts. But I'll guarantee you this, you go into it prayerfully and thoughtfully and seek God's mind as to whom you could share it with, and he will bless your endeavor. It'll be well worthwhile. And then to come back and encourage one another with the, the stories of how God is, is using you in this exercise. Seek the courage that comes from above, something that comes from God. Acts 4, you know, describes the early church. And the early church was at one stage especially when James was taken and executed by the sword. The early church was frightened. It was discouraged. It was persecuted. There was imprisonment. There was death. And they got together to pray and to encourage one another, which I hope you'll do at the prayer meeting on Tuesday morning. What a great idea to get together and encourage one another. But they got together. But what was the nature of their prayer? You know, they read Psalm 2. They read Psalm 2 together. And they didn't pray for deliverance. And they didn't pray for safety. They prayed for courage. God, give us the courage. And here's what the Bible says at the, at the end of the Acts 4. Uh, after they'd had this reading from Psalm 2, where God says whenever the heathens rage against him, he laughs at their foolishness. And so they begin to realize the nature of the God they have. And after they had prayed, the Bible tells me, the place where they were meeting was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. God didn't necessarily deliver them. He gave them courage to stand up for Jesus. So may God give us courage like them and courage like Daniel. And then the link between Daniel's prayer life and his courage is very solid in this chapter. Why was it that he was thrown into the den of lions? Because he had broken the decree. And in what way had he broken the decree? 
Prayer was absolutely central to his living. He was not going to put that aside even for the most powerful monarch on earth at the time. And so the, the link between his prayer life and his courage is solid. And so it will be with us. If we really want to live for God and touch this university, I, I, I promise you it will, it will hang upon us recognizing the importance of prayer. When you get onto your knees to pray in the name of Jesus, you move from this scene of time. Maybe not physically. Somebody looking through the door might still see you sitting there, your head bowed or on your knees or whatever way you do it. But your spirit goes into the very presence of God. You transfer from this time-space framework into the very throne room of the universe. Old Montgomery writing his hymn in Grace, down in Grace Hill in County Antrim, he wrote, we enter heaven by prayer. Every great movement of the Spirit of God has been bathed in prayer. Every great social advance, whether it was Wilberforce or Florence Nightingale or Lord Shaftesbury or, or, or Elizabeth Fry or Rakes, who founded the Sunday School movement, read their lives. And these people changed the world in which they lived, but they were bathing their activities in prayer. You're tapping an amazing resource source whenever we pray. Sometimes we're too casual about our prayers. We're too unexcited. We haven't realized what we're doing. In the very presence of God who moves the, 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 the very handles that change the whole effect of this world, we can tap into that. We can tap into that. Prayer is communing with God. It's not simply to bring God down to work at my level. It's me endeavoring to be brought up that my thoughts are like the thoughts of God, that I, I begin to think in his plane, that I begin to... I mean, prayer starts and, and returns to heaven. God, help me to pray. Teach me to pray. Show me the things I ought to pray for so that I could pray in your will and see it happening. And don't, dis don't distinguish between your Bible reading and prayer. I mean, it is a very strange relationship where the conversation is one way. You have all friends. It would be a very odd friendship if one of you did all the talking and the other only listened. You, you, you communicate with your friends. And so when, whenever you're having time with God, the relationship between his word and allowing his spirit to speak through that word, or even, even asking God, in the circumstances that I've been through today, would you show me the finger of God in those circumstances? Those conversations I had, were you speaking through that friend? So that we, we're listening to God and then we're speaking back to him. And sometimes, you know, we're, we're, we really are quite rude with God. If I was having a conversation with one of you, and, and I was, you were telling me about a, an amazing encounter you had with some friend. And I said, well, I know a guy who was a wart there. You would say, what are you talking about? Well, you're not listening to me. We do that with God. You know, we're reading his word and he speaks to us. And then we change the subject and talk about something else. What about interacting with God? Thinking about what he's saying to us. Talking to him about, Lord, I didn't really understand what you're saying there. 
I, I don't particularly like that. Would you, would you help me to get my thinking into tune with yours? I mean, communicate with God. Allow him to communicate with you. This is, this is what prayer is about. It's, it's communicating with God. Are you listening to God? What if I was to say to you, I have a pastor friend. I'm going back to the Ukraine in March. Uh, we've, we've church friends there, and we've got a, a, you know, a, a, a partnership with the church there. But I know that Nikolai Kostichin, the pastor of the church, will frequently look down and say, George, come up and tell us what God has been saying to you this week. If I tried it in Balnehensha, it would empty the place. You know, but, but, but you know, it's true. It's God, if, God isn't, if, God, if you're not hearing something from God, it's not because he's not speaking. You're not listening. God is speaking to you. He has things to say to you, child of God. But are we listening? Would it be reasonable to say... Uh, to one another, what are God and you working on at the moment? You know, th this growth in grace, this development in Christ, it's not something that just happens casually. We really want to take it seriously. We have a relationship with God, and we really want to take that relationship seriously. Prayer is not, as I say, about getting God to come down. It's getting us to think God's thought. And sometimes that is going to shock us. I mean, God doesn't think the way we think. Doesn't the Bible tell us that? His thoughts are as far above our thoughts as the heavens are above the earth. So don't be surprised if when you're seeking to be guided by God, sometimes he leads you into the most bizarre circumstances. It can be exciting, but it also can be very frustrating. I mean, have you ever thought of how Gideon must have felt? I have often. Here is the horde of the Amalekites. And he wants to get together the biggest army he can from the people of God, from the Israelites, the biggest army he can. And when he gets them together, it's quite impressive. 32,000 he has. And he's feeling good about it. And God says, no, no, too many. Too many. There'd be a number of them frightened Gideon, let them go home. How do you think he felt whenever 22,000 went home? I mean, do you, do you read the Bible and really think of the drama? 32,000, suddenly 22,000. When he gives them the chance, anybody who's afraid go home, 22,000 leave. And I'll bet his heart sank. So he's now down to 10,000, and it's still nothing compared to the hordes of the Amalekites. And you know the story. He turns to God, and God says, too many. Get them to go down to the stream, and those who get down and put their face in the water, send them home, and the rest who lap like dogs, or at least who live up, take the water in the palm of their hands and sup it, keeping their eye out. Whether there was some sort of a strategy of testing people to, to see who's alert, I don't know. All I know is this. God wanted it down to a number that was ridiculous. 300. 300. Think about it. And then he says, all they need is a trumpet and a water pitcher. And I'm sure Gideon thought, this is mad. This, God does things differently. It, it, it's an exaggerated picture, but God does things differently. And if you're going to pray and seek the mind of God, be prepared for surprises. Be prepared for surprises. Prayer had become second nature to old Daniel. And this habitual, holy lifestyle lifestyle was the power that drove him to great things. It was the source of his temporary downfall, but it also was the source of his wonderful relationship with God and the power that flowed from that. Prayers of worship and adoration and, and prayers of thanksgiving and confession. You know, I find those pretty straightforward. I mean, God is wonderful. You've been praising him this evening. It makes sense for me to just acknowledge how wonderful he is and to worship him and to pray how great thou art. 
When it comes to thanksgiving, I have a lot to thank God for. I broke my arm. I didn't break my neck. I've eaten well today. I have a comfortable bed to go home to. I have children that know and love the Lord. I have an awful lot to thank God for, and I'm sure you have too. So giving thanks makes sense. And, and somehow I make a mess of things, and so confession makes sense. I'll tell you where I have trouble with prayer. When it comes to petition and intercession, I, I find this difficult. After all, God knows best. Do I need to ask him for anything except thy will be done? And yet I find Daniel and others and the great prayers that are given by Paul I discover God wants me to pray. He wants me to interact. He wants me to ask for things. And I'll tell you this. God leaves room in his sovereignty for your prayers. He's totally sovereign. The only things that God can't do are things he has determined to put a limit on for himself. He cannot lie. And yet, this sovereign God leaves room in his sovereignty for your prayers. He wants to work in partnership with you. Fellas and girls, what, what a tremendous privilege. God leaves room there. Beware of the errors of fatalism. You know, whatever will be, will be. As though everything that happens must be God's will. What a casual, nonsensical piece of philosophy. Totally contrary to Scripture. We know that there are times that God does not insist on his will. Don't fall into that fatalistic argument. God came to, whenever Samuel went to God and said, the people want a king, God said, but I'm their king. A king will only tax them and send them to war. But Samuel came back and said, sorry, Lord, the, the people really want a king. Okay, give them a king. It wasn't God's primary will, but he let it happen. There are times when God allows into our lives, be careful what you ask for. Jesus, looking down over Jerusalem, said, How oft would I have, but you would not. God does not always insist on it. Ultimately, there is the sovereign will of God that he will not allow things that are determined that will alter the whole change of history. He would know, he, but within that ambit of his sovereignty, he has allowed you freedom. He wants to negotiate with you. He wants you to love him freely and for his own sake. He wants to teach you that there are decisions that you need to make where you take full account of his word and his will. God knows best, and he wants us to discover that, and the consequences of going the other way. Prayer is so vital in this exercise of winning this campus for Jesus. Wesley said, God does nothing but an answer to prayer. Billy Graham said in his final memoirs, if I, he was asked the question, would you do things differently? He said, yes. I would preach less and pray more. David Brainard, Mary Slessor, Gladys Aylward, John Hyde, Jonathan Edwards, people of prayer. You know, one of the greatest, most effective evangelistic sermons ever preached was back in the 18th century by Edwards, back in New England. Sinners in the hand of an angry God. His wife says that for three days he never slept. He prayed and he sought the face of God. And when he stood up to preach that day, people trembled in the pews. People held on to the pillars of the church lest they would fall into a lost eternity. Some went up to the front and said, Pastor, stop, we can take no more. And he preached and many came to saving faith in Christ, all bathed in true, believing, passionate prayer. You can change this campus with courage, 
coming from above and with prayer, we're going to see big things happen for God. You know, this, this chapter, this wonderful story, it, it, it just demonstrates to us something of the essential nature for prayer. If we're going, you can settle for the norm. You know, one of the tragedies, and I'll stop in two or three minutes, okay, because I see people getting impatient probably. Um, I would if I were sitting where you are. But one of the tragedies, one of the tragedies that I'm finding is this. I had a young fellow recently. His name's Brian. He was the barman in the local pub. He got a bit depressed. And some folks said, you should talk to Haddon. Uh, and, and I mean, there are others that he could talk to every bit and even more capable, but they knew me. And I went to see him. And I gave him a copy of the Bible and said, you know, read John's Gospel and the Acts of the Apostles. Maybe if I'd known about Mark, I'd have given him a wee book. He read it. And then he came to church. And he said, are they reading the same book? Are they reading the same book? He found such a mismatch between what he was finding in the Word of God, the exciting life that was there, the evidence of the power of God among the early church, and he saw no thing that was comparable with it in the church of the 21st century. God forgive us. God, God hasn't changed. But we are settling for a norm that is well below the norm that God would have us settle for. One of the reasons because we haven't really got excited adequately about the great God that we have and the Bible that we have uh, to, to the, 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 the possibility of a prayer life with God that is so revitalizing. You know, one of the great stories in prayer in the Bible, rather just like Daniel, was that occasion when Joshua was going to fight the Amalekites. Do you remember the instruction Moses gave? You go into the valley and fight. I'm now becoming an old man. I'll go up to the mountain and pray. You go up the, down to the valley and fight. I'll go up to the mountain and pray. And do you remember how her and Aaron held up the hands of Moses? Now you may say, why that? Why did God insist on that? Because I can imagine Joshua was down in the valley. And he kept looking up and he saw the hands of Moses and they got tired and the others had to hold up. There's where my strength is. And he fought in the power and the unction of the God of Israel, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And he overcame tremendous odds. And later on, the psalmist uses that wonderful phrase, I to the hills will lift mine eyes. From whence cometh my help? It's from God. We need to constantly remind ourselves. I'm going to give a copy of the Gospel of Mark. But the strength of my argument and my one-to-one, -one, that's, that's important, but that's not what's going to make this effective. It's God. It's the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Spirit of the living God that's going to change this. Are you engaged with him? You know, one of the great things is this, and I close with this. We know how this is all going to end. If you don't know Jesus in this group today, and I know this sounds desperately arrogant, but we know how this is going to end. Because the Bible tells me that there is a day coming when this Jesus, who is so trivialized and set at naught today, every knee is going to bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And there's a number in this room tonight, and you've already bowed the knee. 
you've already acknowledged him. And I just urge you, if you haven't already acknowledged him, willingly and freely do it now, because the day will come when everyone will be forced to their knees, but it'll be too late then. Do it now. Enter into this relationship. Value it. Have the courage to go out in his strength and live for him in this university. Not living just for him, but like him. Your calling is to be what Jesus would be in your situation. You, child of God, are part of the body of Christ. Among your friends, in your class, interacting with your colleagues, you're to be Jesus to them. What a calling. And his spirit will enable you, give you the courage to do it, and the strength to make a convincing witness here in this college. Lord, filter out anything that has just been the ramblings of Haddon Wilson and engage within us strongly those things that are pleasing to you. But, oh God, by your Holy Spirit, make us more like Jesus to the glory of God the Father and grant that we will see a movement of your Spirit on this campus that will really ring throughout the land, be talked about to the glory of your name we pray. In Jesus' name we pray it. Amen. Thank you. Thank you very much. If you could just stay up here, we've got one question for you, Han. Oh, me? Yes. Sorry. I was, <laughs> I was halfway home. <laughs> sit back down in the sofa. I have to sit down again. All oh, right. Oh, sorry. Yes, I know you have questions that come in. Right. Yeah. <laughs> we've I've got, forgotten about that. We've got yeah. one question here. So, um, oh, it's disappeared. Technology. I know. Can't live with it, can't live without it. Okay. Um, it says, I love things that show God's amazing power, just like the story of Gideon and his army. From your experience, can you share more of God's glory to us? You know, that's a, it's, a, it's a fair question. I mean, putting me on the spot just like that. <laughs> um, I'm sorry I came. They, no, I'm not really. Um, yeah, I said, but I have nothing as dramatic as Gideon, I can tell you. But I, I have, I've had the privilege of going abroad. The church set us free once for three months to go and see what God was doing in other places. Went to uh, Chad, to sub-Saharan Africa to do a field uh, conference for the African admission. We went over to um, South Korea visited the largest church in the world, Yoido, and so on. Now, this all sounds like a tourist uh, bit, but I'll get to the point. By the way, Yoido had a membership of 903,000 when we were there, 403 pastors. You know, it was just on a scale that blew my mind. But I can remember in Baile, in Chad, visiting a very experienced missionary. And uh, she... Uh, this is a woman who had been in situations that were dramatically different to anything I'd ever experienced. You know, she'd lived alone in bush situations with not a white person in sight, uh, where there wasn't any Christian witness whatsoever. And yet in the middle of the night, and my wife was with me, but in the middle of the night, Yanni wakened up in terror, absolute terror. She, 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 it was a satanic, a, a satanic attack. There's no doubt about it that when we read in Ephesians that the, you know, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, she was in a, a real terror. And there was a dog barking 
It looked more like a wolf, but it was just a large dog barking outside, hysterically barking. And I began to pray for Yanni, just to pray for her in, in, in the way I would normally pray. But nothing seemed to be helping. And I had an experience which I've never had since, where I suddenly found myself praying, but I was no longer the source of the prayer. It was as though the Spirit of the living God had taken over my vocal cords and was praying in perfect English through me, but I was not the source of the prayer. But I know this, I was praying with authority and power that was beyond me. And Yanni Vanderklee, some of you might have met her, began to calm down. And the dog outside screamed and ran away and was never seen again on the campus. And I thought, oh, Lord, I want to experience that sort of spiritual authority. Why did I have to come away to Africa, to sub-Saharan Africa, to Chad? I want to see that sort of thing. Uh, so, you know, I, 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 I'm just simply saying there have been experiences like that. There have been situations uh, where there's been just a sense of the power of God in a way that I would love to see as the norm in church life, not just the exceptional thing. I've talked to others that, uh, that you know, have, have seen uh, God healing. Now, I, I, I find that in, our, in some of our circles, to talk in terms like charismatic gifting is now highly controversial. Uh, and, and, and if you'll allow me to take this on a little further, uh, there are some churches that will just immediately write this off and say, no, this isn't for today. Be very careful, and I'll tell you why. The main doctrinal teaching that suggests that the spiritual gifts, the sign gifts are not for today, they are, it's from the writings of Benjamin uh, Brackenridge Warfield, B.B. Warfield, a great theologian. And, and what Warfield taught was this. If you look at scriptures, you don't find the great miraculous gifts distributed evenly. You find they came with the patriarchs and the coming out of Egypt. They then die out. You find them again with the, uh, the uh, uh, bringing in of the prophetic, uh, the, the prophets. They then die out again, and they come back with the coming of Christ and the establishment of the early church. And then they seem to die out again. Okay, Warfield makes a very good point. What our country now is post-Christian. Make no mistake about it. We are a marginalized minority in this country. There is a great movement, a satanic movement, to suppress the gospel and Christian reasoning. And I believe that God is moving again in ways that are not common with the historical background of the church and perhaps getting ready again for the great return of the Lord Jesus. So be prepared to be open. I urge you, however controversial it might seem, be open to any gifting that God wants to give you. Don't limit him and say, hold on a minute, God, we're Baptists, we don't do that, or we're brethren, we don't do that, or we're Presbyterians, we don't do that. Be open to whatever God wants to do in your life. If you want to throw out a fleece to make sure it is of God, that's reasonable, that's biblical. But don't limit God and say, well, now you can give me this much, but I don't want that because that's not part of my reasoning. God forgive us if we limit God to just do things according to the particular uh, you, you know, grouping that we're with in case we offend someone. I've ceased to worry about who I offend if it's pleasing to God. 
Sorry, it was a bit of a walk around the subject, you know. But That's great. Thank you very much. Okay, I'm allowed to go now. Yes, you're okay. allowed to go. Thank you. Thank you very much.